All right, well, thank you all for coming this evening. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 4. Ecclesiastes 4. I'll be reading out of um, the English Standard Version here this evening. Um, So we'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. It really has been an enjoyable series so far through the, the first few chapters of Ecclesiastes. Unfortunately, due to my work schedule, I've only been here in person for one of the installments so far, so we'll all be playing a little bit of catch-up this evening. <laughs> but um, I've enjoyed listening to uh, you know, a couple of them online, and, and I'm looking forward to sharing uh, some thoughts tonight on chapter four. But before I begin, I, I really wanted, um, I thought it would be a good use of my time this evening to kind of begin with uh, saying thank you <clears throat> to all of you. Um, the past couple of months, for, for our family in particular, um, have been uh, pretty dark, pretty difficult to walk through. And, of course, we know that we're not the only ones who go through situations like this. We're not the only one, even in this congregation tonight, who has lost a parent. Um, But really the love and the experience that you all have had um, in losing a parent, um, you've shared with us, you've you've given us comfort in ways that that we weren't expecting, and in ways that we we, we really can't even begin to, to, to thank you for. So um, I just want to attempt that tonight and say thank you up here publicly. Um, um, even, even today, we're still receiving trickles of uh, cards in the mail. We've got a big stack that we're, we're wanting to scrapbook so we can remember. But thank you so much. Thank you so much for your love and encouragement. So Ecclesiastes. Um, Ecclesiastes is a very dense and philosophical book. Um, I spoke with a friend about a month ago, and I said, hey, what are your thoughts on Ecclesiastes? Um, There was some wind that maybe we had, uh, well, it was a friend who was in my um, homiletics class um, a few years ago, and so I guess there was a a, a class where we actually dissected Ecclesiastes 4, um, and so I was asking him, hey, what do you think about this? I'm, you know, um, I'm going to be preaching here in a couple weeks on Ecclesiastes 4, and do you want to know what he said to me? He said, why Ecclesiastes? Why are you, why are you going in that, in that book? You need to stay away from that book. Maybe it's just something in the New Testament or, or something, you know, like Isaiah. Um, but <laughs> really, it, 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 I mean, it's an understatement to say that it's a dense, a philosophically dense book. But it's also um, a very rich book. It's something that, I mean, up to this point already, we've gleaned so much from. Um, even in the study of chapter 4, I'm excited to show you the things that, um, that, that I've learned from it. And um, so uh, just a reminder, Ecclesiastes um, is a book that offers wisdom um, in three different avenues, by empirical means, uh, through logic, and by revelation that God gave to the author, referred to um, as Koheleth, or the preacher. Um, Pastor already did a great job explaining the authorship. I won't spend uh, nearly as much time this evening on that, um, I, but uh, in an attempt to be as annoyingly technical as possible, um, I hope you don't mind, I'm going to refer to him this evening as Koheleth, okay? Um, but keep in mind, that's what I mean by that, okay? Um, so in a very, you know, millennial fashion, in order to please both sides of the argument, that's what we're going with tonight, okay? But up to this point in the book, Koheleth has offered us his thesis right off the bat, in a way, only a man exhausted by um, hurdle, the hurdles and experiences of life could. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. 
In other words, everything, everything that life has to offer is empty in and of itself. The author spent the first 11 verses of this book eloquently expounding on that statement. Um, Beginning in verse 12, however, Koheleth began to prove that thesis by giving specific proofs. Um, He begins by explaining his position, offering some credentials of sorts, and then takes us along with him on an experiential journey where he presents different circumstances and then points out the vanity or the emptiness of each. We've already journeyed with him as he pointed out the vanity of wisdom, of self-indulgence, even of living wisely and toil. Last Sunday evening, Jonathan Hibbets gave us a very helpful sermon on the different times which Koheleth noticed on his journey up to that point and helped us understand um, that nothing happens outside of the sovereign rule of God. Every season, every event, even things that we would perceive as bad are not accidents. They're all part of the great plan of redemption that God has orchestrated throughout history. God is ultimate, and we are, in the end, accountable to him. Before we read our text this evening, though, I'd like to revisit the end of chapter 3, if you'll indulge me. So I want to just point out a couple verses. Um, If you would, direct your attention to verses 16 and then 22 of chapter 3. Um, I'll just read those real quick. They say, verse 16 says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Keep that in mind for a second. Verse 22 says, So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Now, believe it or not, chapter 3 ends with two thoughts that we're going to discuss this evening. Um, It goes hand in hand with our our, our lesson tonight. Um, Those who have power are often intoxicated by that power, resulting in unrighteousness prevailing in places where righteousness should prevail. Okay, that's that's what we saw here in verse 16 that corresponds with what we're going to talk about here in chapter 4. The second idea is um, there is nothing better than for a man to rejoice in his work, um, for that gives meaning to life. Now, remember, Koheleth is on a journey. He's visiting different places in order to gain proof of his thesis um, that all life has to offer is empty. And um, as we pick up in chapter 4, it seems Koheleth is in the same um, place of judgment as he was at the end of chapter 3, or or else building off of that same idea. Another thing I think we should notice is that the second thought he shared at the end of chapter 3 in verse 22 Koheleth speaks about what happens when we take something that should be balanced, okay, our proper jobs in life, and make them the sole purpose of our lives. So before we begin reading our text, I wanted to get ahead of some questions um, here and and emphasize a couple things. First of all, Koheleth is on a journey in this text. Um, He's sharing wisdom based upon experience. So knowing that, uh, could it be that maybe his wisdom is ebbing and flowing as he is presented with new experiences and information? Well, maybe. It's possible that he's saying that works is our purpose in life and the source of our joy here in chapter 3, and then changed his mind with presented, when presented with new experiences in chapter 4. But much more likely, Koheleth is presenting work as a God-given task to be fulfilled rather than the sole purpose of life. As we're about to see here in chapter 4, problems arise when those two are mixed up. 
Okay, so let's go ahead and read all of Ecclesiastes chapter 4, all 16 verses here. It says, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not uh, yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and a striving after wind. Nothing in this life is without flaw. This is a real positive way to begin a sermon, huh? (laughs) But think about it. Computers crash. Cars rust. Homes deteriorate. People get sick. Phone phone screens crack. Socks get holy and not the good kind of holy. (laughs) Suits shrink. Food goes bad. Hair turns gray. Faucets leak. Paint peels. Clothes tear. Roads get potholes. We know that one a bit too well. (laughs) Do you get the point here? I'm currently uh, taking a psychology class in in school. Don't hold that against me here. But um, I'm currently taking that to get into the the program here. Um, And all you who have ever taken a psych class know exactly what I mean by this statement. Um, Our minds in our psych class have been on deep philosophical ideas that are also somehow incredibly shallow. Okay, do you kind of know what I'm talking about here? All you have been in the psych class. Um, But as I contemplated the different themes of this text, um, my mind drifted to some questions, some things that we've also referred to in our psych class before, and and that is that um, there are questions, there are certain questions whose answers have some very deep implications. And this chapter, in fact, this whole book of Ecclesiastes produces questions like that. Questions like, is there anything in life that I can fully trust or fully rely on? And if not, what is the point of life? What is the point of it all? Now, believe it or not, this is exactly where the writer of Ecclesiastes finds himself in this text. 
We'll see very specific examples of this throughout our time this evening. But if you're familiar at all with the scientific method, um, you'll know that scientists often attempt to take a hypothesis and they test it against different variables. Okay, so, um, so the emphasis is not on proving something to be correct. It's more of testing it by different variables in order to make sure it's foolproof, in order to, to make sure. In other words, it'd be like trying to prove it wrong in order to make sure it's right. Um, these examples in our text this evening are more than just examples. They're proofs of this thesis that Koheleth presented at the beginning of the book. In a way, the author is running his hypothesis through the scientific method, testing it by several different variables to see if it will come up as true in the end. Koheleth will take us to many different places uh, throughout chapter 4 this evening. We'll move through example after example pretty rapidly, and it may seem pretty sporadic at times and random, moving from one place to another very quickly, but I assure you that they all act together as proofs for the author's main thesis, that everything in life, that everything life has to offer is by itself vanity or emptiness. So let's get right into it this evening. We'll pick up right where the preacher left us last week. Um, Look with me in verse 1. Verse 1 of chapter 4 says, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. Life under the rule of man is miserable. Soul trust in the ruling of man by man without God is not how life is intended to be lived. How many of you have older siblings here? Okay. I remember being growing up, being the oldest in my home, and really taking advantage of the little power I had over my siblings. Um, My sister is actually here this evening, so please feel free to never ask her how our childhood was growing up. (laughs) But while there's something to be said about how great of a leader I was um, as as an oldest sibling there, I was admittedly by no means a perfect sibling. Um, Anytime I was in charge while my parents left the house, I would absolutely use that to my advantage. I would, I, would, I would Tom Sawyer my sisters into cleaning my room or, you know, doing my chores for me or rubbing my feet, whatever I needed. Um, I may have used my power wrong <laughs> once or twice there. Obviously, this is a silly example, but this text describes something that is, in fact, very serious. Um, the people in authority described here in this passage, this is, these are very real people. Real scenarios here. Um, They were wielding real power, squishing other people under the thumb of their rule. It was terrible wickedness. They did not judge justly. They took advantage of others in order to further promote themselves. That's what's meant by the terms here, oppress and oppressed. Um, Often when we hear the term oppression, uh, we see images in our mind of, of 19th century America, of 18th century America, you know, kind of the... Um, the darkest days of our country, millions were violently oppressed in the name of prosperity and personal gain. These people were beaten, murdered, separated from their families. That is the picture that's presented here in verse 1. 
incredible pain at the hand of those in power, those who were supposed to be making just decisions. But notice this, Koheleth observed that the oppression of the less fortunate created an isolation that made life unbearable. Um, look at verses 2 and 3 here. It says, And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are under the sun. As I mentioned before, it seems we find in our, ourselves in a similar place um, as we were at the end of chapter 3. Um, this particular place was supposed to be where justice was prevalent. Yet here was a perfect example of injustice taking place. Wearsby described this encounter in his commentary when he said, um, Koheleth went into a courtroom to watch a trial, and here he saw innocent people being oppressed by power-hungry officials. The victims wept, but their tears did no good. Nobody stood with them to comfort or assist them. The oppressors had all the power, and their victims were helpless to protest or ask for redress. But notice the wording in the middle of verse 1. It says they had no one to comfort them. And at the end of the same verse, it's emphasized again, and there was no one to comfort them. The point Koheleth is making here is, even in the midst of those who are most, we are most inclined to trust for our social well-being, there's still corruption. There's still a power dynamic happening there. Therefore, a trust in these people, a 100% unwavering trust in these people as the sole, um, the sole end to all of our means here, as clearly seen through the tears of these that they oppressed, brought nothing but vain, emptiness, and vanity. He didn't stop there with this typical, this is vanity remark, though. Um, he goes on to say that this was so terrible that I thought the dead more fortunate than those who are still alive. But better both is he who is never born. Better than both is he who is never born. We've heard similar laments to this in, in men like Job who said, cursed was the day of my birth. Um, he said, I wish I was never born. This is an intense exclamation of how depraved and awful the situation was. These men and women in power felt as if they were entitled to a life of power and prosperity at the expense of those under their authority. And the author of this book beheld this and lamented in response. His thesis was confirmed in such a sad way. Everything life has to offer in and of itself is empty. Isolation at the hands of the entitled really is a terrible thing. But what about those who, who work hard for the things they have? Um, there are those who seem to treat others with respect and, and work hard for what they have. Perhaps a journey to the workplaces of this time would prove Kohelis' thesis um, incorrect. Well, look with me at verses 4 through 6. It says, Then I saw all the toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. So Koheleth observed um, two, two types of people here. Those whose careers uh, required competition, um, or those who were very, very hard workers here, um, and those who were lazy. Now notice what he says as he compares these types of people here. 
Um, check out the startling claim he made in verse 4. Okay, let's, let's revisit verse 4. He says, All toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. His startling claim was that all those who were competitive in their work were motivated by envy. Koheleth is talking about, about, at this time, what we would perceive as the family man, of, of, of the, the, the provider of his family, the blue-collared workers, um, those men and, and women who worked hard to provide for their family. His claim was that they were all motivated by envy. The idea is that these, um, that, that these who we would imagine as the most innocent of our working society, um, Koheleth is saying that even those people were motivated by envy. He ends this verse by complaining that, that this is vanity, or by claiming that this is vanity and striving after the wind. This is emptiness. Well, what is? I believe his implication is clear here that this phrase describes the emptiness of the expectation this envious worker had for being competitive and hardworking, um, that he would be better than his neighbor. It was pride. It was, it was a self-reliance. So what would happen if this worker climbed the ladder of success and outdid his neighbor? So what would happen if he got what he wanted, what he was trying so hard to work towards? How would that goal that motivated, term out, motivated him turn out to be in the end? Koheleth said that it's emptiness, it's vain. Another proof confirmed his thesis. Uh, what about this next person? Look at verse 5 with me. It says, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. What we find in this verse are two different figures of speech. Okay? Um, Koheleth is describing the damaging effects of laziness. Well, where do we find laziness here? Notice the phrase here that says, the fool folds his hands. This sounds pretty familiar to us. So the author of this book was um, either Solomon or someone very familiar with Solomon's writings. Um, it, it, if it, it is in Solomon's other writings that we can find the definition to this phrase. We see it written in Proverbs. Um, specifically, Proverbs 6, 9 through 11 says, How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. And a few pages over in Proverbs 24, verses 30 through 34, it says, I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it, I looked and received instruction, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. It's by these passages, along with some other literary evidences of, of this time, that the folding of the hands implies laziness. Um, so what specifically about this lazy individual's life is Koheleth attempting to bring to our attention? Well, specifically... Regarding this person noted in this text, laziness ate away at this individual's life. So let's go ahead and apply the theme of this chapter of this book so far and ask ourselves how this specific case applies to the greater thesis of the book. Um, what is the root motivation of laziness? Prioritizing comfort above its proper, proper place. Okay? Um, it's making a god of idleness. It's a form of pride. 
So there's an expectation here, just like everything else we've seen so far, that's going to prove to be worthless in the end. Well, what is that? I would say that the other figure of speech found at the end of this verse gives a clear picture to that. So the verse says, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Okay, um, the author isn't describing an individual who struggles with self-cannibalism. It's not what's happening here. Um, He is using this expression to point out the futility of the expectations that lazy individuals rely on. Um, To them, pleasure is more important than provision. For whatever reason, they believe they will be taken care of whether they work for their needs or not. Perhaps there's a reliance on a third party, such as parents, spouses, authority figures, government, etc. Whatever this individual's comfort is placed in, if we're tracking with the author's train of thought here, it will fail in the end. It will prove to be empty, worthless. Not just that, though, but the extent of this individual's reliance on this pseudo-comfort to excuse their laziness will not just prove to be worthless. It seems this verse is telling us that it's going to prove to be detrimental, life-altering. And this is why the word picture of eating one's own flesh is such a useful description here. If you're familiar at all with the condition called autophagy, you know, um, you know that it's the process by which you, you, you get so deep in starvation, or sometimes it comes with um, you know, different, different diseases, but you get so deep in starvation that your body begins to consume its own tissue okay, in order to continue uh, metabolism there. It, it, it processes its own tissue. Someone who's starving is relying on what? Nothing. So who they are, their very flesh, is consumed as a result. And this is how the lazy individual is. This is why this is such a useful word picture here. Um, Their reliance on something that is empty only results in the consumption of everything they know and love. Their entire life is consumed as a result. Koheleth, after allowing the pendulum to swing from one end of the spectrum to the other, points our attention to the middle, giving a proverb that advises how work and life should be. Okay, it should be balanced. So let's look here at verse 6. It says, Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. Now, again, another figure of speech here. Don't get caught up in that. Okay, um, Just envision it in your mind for a second. How many hands do we have? We have two hands, okay? So read the verse again. He says, Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. The picture he's presenting here, okay, is that we need to have a life lived in balance. Have one hand full of quietness instead of two hands of toil and a striving after the wind, which would mean one hand of quietness, one hand of toil and striving after the wind. There's balance there, Okay? That's the picture he's trying to present here. A life lived in laziness often results in no life at all. Um, A life lived in excess, in, in, um, in this envy that he was describing earlier, it results also in having no life at all, as we'll actually see here in the next verse. But here's the principle. Life lived lazily or hastily both end the same way. There's no real purpose to either if the labor or the rest is the only reward. The preacher, Goheleth, is a writer of Proverbs. It seems he almost couldn't help himself but interject a proverb in the midst of his observations here. Um, 
So look with me uh, as we continue on here at the opening phrase of verse 7 in your Bibles. He opens with the word again. Koheleth is continuing his flow of thought in this subject in a way that almost, I mean to me when I read it, almost carries an air of annoyance. He's kind of saying again and again we see this, again we see that. Um, For example, chapter 3 verse 16 says, moreover I saw. Chapter 4 verse 1 says, again I saw. Verse 4 says, then I saw. And this verse begins with, again I saw. If you think Koheleth is running out of transitional words, you'd be mistaken. Okay, this is, there's very intentional, this is a very intentional use of this word. The word behind our English word, again, carries the idea of heaping and heaping upon. Okay, um, I don't know if you guys knew this, but next week is uh, the Super Bowl. So oftentimes, you know, we'll have get-togethers and we'll, you know, watch the Super Bowl, whatever. Um, so when we have a bunch of people over, we'll buy several cases of pop, okay? And, and we'll just put them all in our trunk. But by the time we get home, we have to unload them into our apartment. So the best way to do that is for me to stand like this and Elizabeth to put them in my arms and stack them one on top of another, okay? That's the picture that Koheleth is giving here. We're just heaping one upon another, okay? The different proofs that he's presenting, he's heaping one on top of each other. So uh, look down at this chapter and the next and the next and the next. We have a long way to go (laughs) um, before the proofs are finished here. But let's continue on with Koheleth to see what example he gives next. Um, Look again with me at verses 7 through 8. It says, Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity in an unhappy business. Do you know anybody like this? I know a couple people like this, like the person described here in this text. People who work and work and work with no end in sight. They either have no one to leave it to or are just working hard to accumulate surplus, excess in their lives. Koheleth observed the emptiness of this in his description of the life of an individual caught up in this snare of materialism. As Americans living in the year 2023, we are very familiar, unfortunately, with surplus and materialism. I want to be careful here, okay, because God has blessed us with many things, and and we need to give praise to him for the surplus that we have and and how we don't have to worry about um, different things here as other people in the world have to. But materialism is an issue that we need to deal with in our lives. It's way too prevalent, and it's something that, that we need to deal with in our lives. But these two things are not the same things. Okay, Surplus and materialism are not the same things. So surplus is having more than exactly what is needed to, sur- to survive, Okay, which means if you pay all of your bills, pay for everything you need in the month, and then at the end of the month, you have one penny in your bank account. You have surplus. Okay, That would be surplus. Materialism, on the other hand, is the overemphasis and undue stressing of accumulating stuff over other more important things in life. Um, Symptoms of this look like getting more satisfaction from going to Target than spending time with people close to you. 
Okay, um, a quick internet search will tell you that it can look like an obsession with wealth and material objects with little to no thought of the spiritual or ethical issues uh, or personal relationships. Oftentimes, we'll commend those who work hard in our country, rightly so. In and of itself, as we briefly mentioned earlier, there's, there's nothing wrong with hard work. It's the reliance on greedy gain, positional status, the envy involved in moving up the ladder of success that we find the vanity of Koheleth's thesis. For our purposes this evening, notice the faults and the motivations of this individual. Um, without an heir or dependent, there was no reason for this man to work as hard as he did. Well, what was the reason for this man to have two hands full of toil and striving after the wind, as Escoheleth described a couple verses before? Well, let's look at verse 8. We'll see if we can find it here. It says, One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. place in my notes. Sorry about that. Um, so notice the faults and the motivations of this individual. There was no reason for this man to work as hard as he did. He was motivated by riches, and it seemed he believed he needed to obtain an unattainable number of dollars, or an unattainable amount of wealth. You can see this in the phrase, his eyes were never satisfied by riches. Furthermore, it seems that this man, as signaled in the phrase, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure, hadn't even thought about anything other than satisfying himself. He just worked hard, killing himself for no other reason than it was that he felt driven by selfish motivations to do so. Besides the obvious, there are a few issues we see in this man's life. Okay. First of all, this individual is ignoring the advised life of balance given in verse three, uh, in verse six. One hand of quietness, the other hand of hard work. He believes his sole purpose is to work and work with no enjoyment of life itself. And he has no one to benefit from his work and no one to leave an inheritance. Perhaps this is circumstantial, but most likely he's in this position of isolation from heir or loved one because of the life of toil that he, he lives. He did this to himself. It appears that this materialistic workaholic trusted in his things to provide satisfaction. But as this verse plainly states, that never would come. Satisfaction would never come. It was empty. It was worthless. It reminds me of a tight-fisted fictional character um, from 19th century England. Ebenezer Scrooge. <laughs> so um, growing up, my family would participate in a, a Christian rendition of A Christmas Carol. Okay? It's called A Christian Christmas Carol. It was this big production. We loved being a part of it. And my dad played Ebenezer Scrooge. Okay? Um, and he'd always do such a great job at it. I, I, would, I was so proud of him. Um, I loved it. But in this drama, there was a scene where Ebenezer Scrooge is taken to his past by the ghost of Christmas past, often played by my mother, and he would run into himself as, at a younger age, so young Scrooge. Um, and in this one particular scene, Scrooge is having an argument or a disagreement with his fiancée named Belle. Um, and he, basically what happened is Belle noticed that 
his money, Scrooge's money, was becoming more important to Scrooge than she was. So she confronted him about it and gave him an ultimatum and said, it's me or the money, basically. And um, Scrooge stopped and, and looked at his money on his desk and, I mean, chose his money because he, he believed that that would bring him more happiness and more benefits than uh, a wife would. The clincher, though, isn't the fact that Scrooge let her go in this scene. The part to me that was always the most convicting and, and tear-jerking about this scene was the fact that after Belle left, young Ebenezer stands there and looks after her like this. And Scrooge, who of course is invisible, gets in his younger self's face and starts yelling and screaming at him, saying, go after her, calling him a fool for not going after her. Of course, the spirit of Christmas past pulled him away and reminded him that these were but shadows of things that had been, and nothing he did in this moment could change it. This broke Scrooge and sent him into a wild frenzy, demanding he be left alone, very obviously grieved by this painful scenario here. He realized that he was wrong about his wealth. Scrooge was alone and miserable because he trusted in his wealth and things to bring him happiness above all else. But after years of pursuing materialism, it didn't satisfy him. I believe this is the exact lesson that Koheleth is teaching us here in this text. Koheleth looked at this and said, materialism isn't just empty. It's an unhappy business. He searched for fulfillment in working long hours and accumulating wealth, but soon would find that this was empty. This was vanity. Materialism conceives a misplaced passion to grow with no end. Without a true purpose, one's desire to build and build will never be satisfied. There's no satisfaction in life when it's lived selfishly. And in the end, there will only be regret and isolation. So what's the point here? What is Koheleth going to give us? When is he going to give us the conclusion of the matter? Because I see no end in sight by what he's saying up to this point. Is life totally pointless? Like I said earlier, we, we still have a long way to go. Um, is there no end to the vanity and bleakness of life, though? Well, maybe verse 9 will give us that answer. Look at, at verses 9 through 12 with me. He says, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. I find it interesting that Koheleth perhaps is so grieved by the observation of, of the Scrooge in our text that he pauses his journey to offer some more proverbs. These statements, while emphasizing the shortcomings of human relationships, make very obvious that life cannot be lived without one important thing, and that is codependency. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for the toil. Um, there's that word again, toil. We've talked about that a lot tonight. Hard work is best when more than one person benefits from it. The verse says they have good reward for their toil. In other words, the success two find together in, the, in, in their work partnership is much greater than if one were off on his own. 
there's a mutual dependency presented here. Um, if one falls, the other will be there to help him up. That would not be the case if one person was alone. Um, there was a man named Aaron Ralston. Are any of you familiar with Aaron Ralston? Okay. So he is what you call an extreme hiker. And um, a couple decades ago, I think it's been now, he went hiking alone through the canyons of Utah. Okay. He didn't take any communication devices with him. He didn't tell people where he'd be at any specific time. And about 48 hours into his journey, he found himself literally between a rock and a hard place. Okay. He was journeying through one of the small canyon cutouts in Utah when a boulder came loose, fell in, and lodged his arm in between the wall of the canyon and this boulder. Of course, he had no communication device. Nobody knew where he was. So he was forced after several hours, after he ran out of water, to make a difficult decision. He began by um, chipping away at the boulder. The only thing that did was dull his knife out. And then he had to make the decision to self-amputate his arm. Otherwise, he would have died there. And so he successfully self-amputated his arm with a dull pocket knife. Okay? Uh, they made a movie about this. I've never seen it, so of course I don't re recommend it. But, um, but that's what happened, and he ended up surviving and, and was able to tell his story after this. But can you imagine how differently that, that, that story would have ended if he took somebody with him? Or if he had communication with someone else? We probably wouldn't have even heard of the guy because of it. Um, so this, of course, is the picture that, that Koheleth is, is showing here. You are a lot more vulnerable on your own than you think you are. You need codependency. And once again, mutual dependency is presented here. And the same is displayed in verse 11. If two lie together, they keep warm. It's simple. We see it in nature, and, and, and we do it as humans as well. Husbands, if it's cold outside and your wife is with you, where is she? She's not six feet away from you. She is stuck to you like glue, right? Um, we see it in the Arctic with penguins. They all get together and huddle together to keep warm. Uh, what would happen if the person Koheleth spoke about was alone? He would not have the warmth of the other. Simple as that. There's a mutual dependency presented once again here. Um, codependency is important in everyone's life. So it's no surprise then that the author adds one more example to display this idea in verse 12 when he speaks of a man on his journey. Um, the wilderness is a dangerous place today, let alone thousands of years ago when this book was written. Um, the man, uh, this, I mean, this was displayed in the parable Jesus taught of the Good Samaritan. The man who was attacked on the side of the road was by himself, okay? Um, he was overtaken easily because of that. Well, the author of Ecclesiastes uses poetic language here by counting up, okay, one who is alone, two will withstand him, a threefold cord, um, to emphasize once again the idea that it is foolish to think life can be lived in full dependence on oneself. If you haven't guessed it already, the main idea that Koheleth is making in this section is there is usefulness and codependency because it causes one to realize that his or her life cannot be lived in their own efforts. It must be recognized that even though the main emphasis of the section um, is on the strengths that these mutual dependences prove, 
I don't think it would be too far of a stretch to point out the shortcomings as well. Um, the different examples this passage provides leaves room for imperfections in relationships, which would tie in with the overarching thesis of this book. Uh, for example, in the portion where he discusses the man who helps his brother up after falling, the first man still falls. Okay? His brother was incapable of keeping him from falling. Um, the, t- the one, the two, and the three people who fight are still involved in an altercation. Um, I would venture to say that this ties this section of these Proverbs into the theme of the whole text. Proofs of Kohelet's theme, uh, thesis, that everything in life, even the good and useful things, are empty in and of themselves. Even the best things in life will fail if relied on completely. To be honest with you, that's discouraging. If that's the only perspective we have, that is discouraging. As Koheleth continued his journey of proofs, scientifically testing his hypothesis, his thesis was once again proven to be true. But there was a purpose that he included this light in the midst of this dreary, melancholy dissertation. At this point, Koheleth had observed the wickedness that man-centered power produced. He observed the futility of both hard work and laziness. He observed the snare of materialism and then um, observed that while containing benefits, even the closest human relationships had their shortcomings. Don't miss the fact that he brought much good out about these relationships. Well, why did he do that? I would venture to say that, that the point here was specifically to point out the fact that humans cannot live in total dependence on themselves. A life lived in one's own effort will always fall short. I'd say that, that it's obvious here that the purpose in this was to show that life cannot be lived in our own efforts. It's uh, in the strength of another that we have to depend. So who is it that we must depend? Is it the wisest of this world? Well, maybe. Surely the wisdom of the wisest is dependent, uh, dependable in any scenario. Let's look at verses 13 through 16 to see. It says, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth, or, or that second youth, who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So here Kohleth gives a rags-to-riches story. Uh, We see a poor youth who grew in wisdom, eventually placed in a position of power just to become a foolish, stubborn king. Um, A king who no longer listened to sound advice. Now, there's, there's much debate concerning, or around this story concerning who the characters are. Some people say it's Joseph. Some people say it's Solomon himself. There's a lot of debate around this, but I would say that what matters more is the point of this last example. You know, the story reminds me a lot of a football player who spends pretty much his whole life in high school um, working at his craft, getting better at high school uh, uh, football, just to be, you know, uh, recruited to a college and get better and better and better, maybe win a couple championships, and then, you know, to be drafted in the NFL after that, to rise to the very top of his sport, just to fall on his face, Um, maybe as a result of an injury or a scandal or something like that, and then play for a mediocre team until his retirement. 
Um, nobody bats an eye when he retires. In fact, they already have someone lined up to take his place. And even after he's gone, commentators discuss how he, once one of the best of his profession, ended in such a mediocre place, low compared to where he was when, when he was at his prime. In the case of this king, it's because he no longer listened to the counsel of those around him that he ended in that place. Now, there are a couple things to observe here. First of all, the story ties into the previous section where we discussed the importance of relying on others and the futility of self-dependence. Okay, we see that here where it talks about how he no longer takes the advice of his counsel. Second, notice how this king is presented as wise in his youth and then foolish in his old age because he no longer knew how to take that advice, meaning he had the wisdom at one point to do so. In fact, he retraces his journey a second time in verse 14. At one point, this king was a good king, wise and surrounded by good counsel, which he was willing to receive. This was futile, though, as even the good status of his rule was eventually squelched over time. Goheleth observed that whether a king was wise or foolish or both, the royal wisdom was fleeting like everything else under the sun, making an exclusive trust in even the highest authority in the land unstable ground. In other words, even the most respected and wisest of this world has their limits. Every football player will eventually retire. Every president will eventually be succeeded. Even the wisest of this earth will pass away. So if these people and their wisdom, um, if, if these people and their wisdom are the things that we place our total dependence on, we will find ourselves wanting. And that, my friends, is the end of the chapter. <laughs> the idea continues throughout the next several chapters, but what are we supposed to walk away with from all that we, we learned in our chapter this evening? I have to say, this is the question that I've been chewing on the past few weeks, almost frustrated, <laughs> in a frustrated way, trying to figure it out. Um, but time and time again, Koheleth gives examples of seemingly every area of life that falls short of satisfaction. The, ver the, the verses at the beginning of this chapter um, kind of echoes, I echo that discouragement there when he says, and I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. It really seems like life is pointless. His thesis is correct, it seems. There's only vanity under the sun. And then another thought appeared. How can we escape this futile life? Is there an escape? How does one even begin to escape the futility of life under the sun? And almost out of frustration, I naturally asked, where was God in this passage? In all of this discouragement, where was God in the oppressive rule of the self-entitled and all the other examples that we saw? And I had to stop there because I, I literally could not find him in the text. Um, these examples were people who relied on things other than God to bring their lives purpose, meaning and satisfaction. And they all came short of doing that. And often these led to detrimental consequences. It is a fact that not even a hint of God is acknowledged in this chapter. But that's the whole point. Um, the whole reason Koheleth is giving example after example of disappointing, unsatisfactory lives is because he's trying to emphasize the fact that life is pointless and disappointing without God in it. 
If that is the point the author's trying to make, not just here, but throughout the whole book of Ecclesiastes, I believe that this specific text is making the assertion that an individual dependent on the empty, vain things of life will always be disappointed. They will always come up wanting. So naturally, we have to ask, where is the escape? One begins to escape the futility of life under the sun by realizing that the only thing that won't fail is a relationship with the sun. Two different suns there. Sun with a U, sun with an O. The one that won't fail is a relationship with the sun. Life under the sole rule of wicked men will always result in isolation and pain. If your work or comfort is your God, it will never satisfy. If materialism is your one ambition, it will never be enough. If you believe you can get by in life in your own efforts, you'll fall flat on your face. If wise men alone are your final authority, they will fall short. Friend, the futility, the vanity of life under the sun can only be escaped through a proper relationship with the sun. The only one who will never disappoint. He is the antithesis of all the vanity life has to offer. So, um, quickly, what can we walk away with from this passage this evening? Well, first of all, a trust in human power and wisdom, in wealth and in comfort, will always, always come short. Second of all, I believe the most practical point of application we can take with us today is that the futilities of life serve to remind us of the importance of a relationship with our Savior, who is unable to fail. The next time your friend betrays you, thank God that he will never betray you. The next time your finances fail, thank God that he will never fail you. The next time you notice your body's age and the aches and pains that come with it, thank God that he will never waste away. The Bible speaks to the fact that God cannot sin. He cannot lie. He will not fail. He will not cause us to sin. His word will not return void. He's completely and totally trustworthy. He's the one you should be investing all of your trust in, not the futile things life has to offer. We can rely on him without question. His word is trustworthy. We have no need to dread him, but every reason to trust him. We can begin to escape the futility of the things this life has to offer by cultivating a relationship and shifting our perspective to the one who always comes through, who will never fail. Our lives cannot be lived while totally dependent on ourselves of the temporal things of this life. We must learn to cultivate our relationship with Christ, the only one who will never fall short of perfection. He will never come short of perfection. So here we are, ending right where we began this evening. Nothing is without flaw. Except we're no longer in a place where that phrase is discouraging. Nothing in life is without flaw. But just like darkness gives, gives, way, gives light the greater opportunity, the, the greater background to shine in, this fact only acts to show us the stability that is in a relationship with our creator and the dire need we have for him. Nothing in this life is without flaw, sure. But as Christians, that should make us so thankful for grace. In Christ, we have everything we could ever need or want. Everything in life is flawed. It's all empty. It's all vanity, except Christ. So as we conclude this evening, let's be sure to keep the proper perspective. 
Christ is the one thing worth putting your full trust in. Everything else will fail, making them truly empty in the end. Does this mean we can't trust anything at all? Well, well, no. This just means we need to keep the proper perspective in whom we trust and never fully rely on something as our total satisfaction and complete sustenance. No one except the Lord. Can you think of any areas in your life that need to be revisited? I can think of a few just looking at this here. Um, your finances, material provisions, even people. Are we putting more faith in these things than we are in God? He is the one, the only one, worthy of our total reliance, for he will never come up short. He will always be proven true. And Father, thank you just for this reminder this evening. Thank you for the act of grace that you've given us to show us through your word areas that we need to change. And I pray that you'd give us the strength to do that this evening. Thank you for your kindness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.